Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovis.com, that's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and don't go gently, y'all. One of the cool studies um, that I was able to see that, I don't know if it's published yet, but uh, they did a striper tagging study where they spawned. So some in Hudson, some in the Chesapeake, and where they ended up all the way from Maine, Connecticut, Boston, et cetera, is all these fish swim north through the Cape Cod Canal, or they go around the Cape Cod Canal. And so one of the cool things they found is like on the way up, the stripers split half and half, some around Provincetown, half through Cape Cod Canal, some go north to the South Shore, Boston, you know, New Hampshire, Maine. And then those fish are resident. They notice that those fish come back to those same spots every year, which is really cool to see. But it's also scary because as I mentioned before, those overfishing spots like Cape Cod got overfished, then the next spot got overfished, and now the fish are in Boston. Once those fish are overfished, they're not coming back here anymore. I'm Joe Gugino, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the podcast today. We're going to venture away from South Florida, away from permit bonefish, tarpon, redfish, snook, those kind of fish. We're going to go up to the Northeast and we're going to talk to Joe Gugino about striper fishing in the Northeast. A lot of you guys have written in, told me that you wanted more Northeastern fishing. So here we go. Great conversation with Captain Joe Gugino of Why Not Fishing. Here we go. Joe, what's up, man? How are you? What's going on, Tom? How are we doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I've uh, had a busy day. It's my birthday, and I've done three of these podcasts today. So, um, yeah, it's been uh, it's been. I didn't Cheers mean to, to schedule. You. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I didn't mean to schedule them all on my birthday, but that's just kind of kind of how it worked out. Um, but oh anyway, things are good, man. Things are good. Well, I heard a lot of good things about you. I want to get to know you a little bit. Um, you're a, a striper fisherman up in the Northeast, which is a little bit, um, that's really a little bit out of my world. Of all the different okay. fishing that I have had a chance to do, I mean, you, I, I turned 52 today. There's only there's only so much time in 52 years to get around to all of the fish. Striped bass is one of the one of the fish that I've spent the least amount of time on, just to make that clear. So, gotcha. and and really for a lot of the audience too, I think it's a fish that that many of the South Floridians have spent very little time uh, fishing for. So we'll, we'll kind of remember that and bring it back to kind of elemental, uh, talk, talk about it. Like you're talking to a four-year-old basically because <laughs> you are <laughs> like the kids I have at home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. But how did you get it, get started in all of this? For sure. Well, did you say you're 52 or 53 today? 52. 
52 hours, 33 Monday. So we got a good right birthday on. weekend. Leo's. Are you a Leo? Yeah, Leo, both Leo. So yeah. we're good. Leaders. Yeah. So, uh, so straight bass. So I'm originally from Connecticut, so I didn't grow up on the coast. Um, I grew up fishing with my brothers in Connecticut, mostly freshwater, largemouth bass, kind of how everybody does. But then I made my way, um, to college on the North shore of Boston, Endicott college where I played lacrosse. And so once I made it to the coast, I never left. I uh, met okay. my wife there. We settled here. Man. Um, and so lacrosse, then I fell in love with stripers. Lacrosse is such a, such a Northeastern sport, but it is, it has migrated to the South. And, uh, I had two boys that played one that, that, thought he was going to go to, um, to college and play. He was very good. Uh, but what was your, um, upbringing in lacrosse? What position did you play? I played face-off midi. So I nice. ended up like face-offs and offense and defense. Were so. you Fogo or like, did uh, you play? I stayed on. You I did? stayed on. How do you yeah. do that? Because you know what? My son was a wrestler Yeah. and he was really, really good at the face-off, but they, you know, this coaching style started migrating uh, for those that don't know lacrosse, there's something called a FOGO, which is face off, get off. And basically you take a wrestler or somebody that's very good at uh, mm -hmm. managing their body weight and scooting other people out of the way and has fast reflexes and can get the ball real fast. And they just do the face off. They throw it to somebody else and they run off the field as fast as possible. And somebody else runs on and it's a weapon. I mean, if you've got a good FOGO guy, that is a weapon. But my son did not want to be that guy. He did not want to. So he just kept arm's length at face-off, even though that was one of the things that he was the very best at, but he did not want to be the FOGO. And the coach kind of had, he was like a FOGO coach. Like that's, we're going to have one of these people. And, and he did not want to be that. So how do you, how do you do that? We'll get back to the fishing in a second, but how yeah, do you, no. how do you do that where you're, where you're good at face-offs, but then you get to stay on the field? Yeah. So I totally respect that where your son's at and that can, I mean, I graduated Endicott in 2009. So I was kind of coming through that as that FOGO thing was kind of solidifying, I would say. Um, and when I went to Endicott, I was behind John Orlani, okay. who was a major league lacrosse player, played professionally, unbelievable athlete. And so when I came in, we, we got to meet him at a, at a game. Oh, I took my, I, yeah, I took my son to, uh, I took my son Paul to a Rose. game and Paul Rabel was supposed to be the, yeah. the guy that was the super, superstar there. And, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know what happened to Paul Rabel, but everybody was supposed to get to shake Paul Rabel's hand and, and hang out with him after the game. And, uh, he didn't show up, but, but Paul oh. Ortolani did. And he was John so Ortolani. John Ortolani, yeah, he okay. did. And he was so nice to all of the kids and he stayed there until the last kid had gotten to meet him, shake his hand, sign his Jersey, whatever. Just huge respect for that guy. He was super nice. And that's uh, amazing. Yeah. What a great story. What a small world. And you took the words out of my mouth because I was saying fishing's a small world. Once you want no know one guy, you know, everybody. Yeah. And look at that. I mentioned with the first player out of my mouth and you, oh, that's <laughs> awesome. John's the man. So I got to play under him and he was unbelievable. World-class all American all-star and, I played my sophomore year I was mostly offense focus. My junior year I was mostly defense focused. And when John graduated, he actually was my coach. Um, and I took over my senior year. My brother was a couple years younger than me, so played with him. And uh, I got to, you know, take faceoffs. And I definitely wasn't a FOGO. I had that offensive defense background, so I was able to, you know, fill in as a senior leader on the team and help with the faceoff X, but also stay on play offense. Stay not a liability to stay on for defense. So I'm glad I had a unique ability to do it all. And that's a great sport. I loved lacrosse. Uh, I didn't get to play personally because it had not migrated 
to the south. It was not 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 available to us, but uh, watching my sons play was was fantastic, and I just I just loved it. I thought it was a that is a really cool sport, and you see a lot of uh, see a lot of leadership come out of uh, come out of lacrosse. And there's there's I don't know there's a it's a great sport. I'm glad that Definitely. I'm glad they had the opportunity to play it. Um, and John and I also had the ability to play for uh, our head coach Sean Quirk, who's now the head coach of the Boston Canons, who just won Coach of the Year and won the championship uh, a couple weeks ago. So that's pretty wow. cool too. Now, wasn't John? Uh, didn't he have a wrestling background as well? Yeah, he's a professional fighter as well. Not only not a, as well as a professional lacrosse player. Yeah, because I think I knew that about him and had picked him out because that was my background. I was a wrestler, and gotcha. so um, you can kind of pick him out. I don't know. He yeah. he. Uh, I'm, that guy looks like a wrestler, you know. And I you look. <laughs> you, you start googling, and you know, you have that now. You have that. The world is in the palm of your hand, and you can kind of. Google up things. You're like, yeah, I knew, I knew he looked like a wrestler, the way he could move people around and stuff like that. And, um, sure. I don't know. He was just, uh, he was super cool to watch. Super fun. Uh, but that wrestling background is good for that particular position in lacrosse. Very good. Did you wrestle? I did not wrestle. I mean, just with my younger brothers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that was enough. <laughs> yeah. Right on, right on. That's cool. Um, the, the, uh, the lacrosse background, that's a D one school that you were at, right? Uh, D3, but we D3? were ranked uh, top 20, as high as top four, top five in the country while I was there. Gotcha. Gotcha. And did you play the whole your whole college career? Yep. I played every game. I only missed three or four games the end of my junior year when I separated my shoulder. And other than that, I played in every game. Man, nice. How's your shoulder these days? Uh, it's completely separated. I'm sure someday I'll need to get the surgery, but it became to a point at the end of the year where it was like, you can either get the surgery and maybe come back or i it's a degree five separation. So you can't do it any worse. God, so I'm degree sure someday five separation. So what does that mean? Uh, what, what is separated? Like, is it the rotator cuff that is, well, you can d- delete this out. Oh. You can see that big loop in my arm there. And then on the other side, it's just flat. So it just goes across. So you basically super swole over here on this side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Watch out. Oh man, That's what I'm standing. I'm not standing up. Just get my arms. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I got you, man. So you yeah, have to throw the, five. do you have to throw the net up there? Like what's that? Do you ever have to throw the cast net? Uh, not yet. I mean, we can do bunker. We'll get and talk a little bit about tactics later, but most of the bunker we get in Boston are snag and drop versus like down in Southern New England. They're throwing cast nets like you would down south. Mm-hmm. Well, I would I think mean, that, that that shoulder, if you're starting to throw the cast net a lot, you, you're probably going to end up getting that surgery. But um, uh, I don't know. Does it hurt? Does, it looks like it might hurt. Uh, sometimes. I mean, like when you're reeling in a ton of fish or making a ton of casts, I definitely notice it. Um, Do you know when it's going to rain like, like my grandfather? <laughs> <laughs> not that bad. Not that bad. I'm just kidding. Uh, but I know I'm doomed to pick up my daughter or son one day, and that's when it's going to go. It's just going to be the most like slow motion pull, and I'm just preparing for it now. Yeah. So, do you have a family now? <laughs> I do. I have a three year old uh, daughter. Well, she'll be three on the 30th, Annabella. And my son, Luca, will be seven months this month. Nice. Nice. You're busy, man. I was, uh, I've got three kids. My, uh, my youngest daughter just turned 17 the other day. We have a, she was close to your birthday. When did you say Monday? She's on the 15th. Uh, August 17th. She's on the 15th. So bunch we of, we're all right here together, but, uh, yeah. yeah, it goes fast, man. That's what I can say is, um, just enjoy every second, you know, even I when you're not sleeping and doing all that, but 
That's what old people used to tell me when I was, uh, when I was your age and, and they were right, man. I'm like, you know, time doesn't, time goes as fast as time goes. It doesn't go any faster or slower, but somehow when you get a little bit older, it seems to go a lot faster. Yeah. Next thing sure. you know, you'll turn around and your daughter will be 17. And don't uh, tell me that. It's scary, dude. It's scary. It's scary. So, um, so you were telling me about, uh, before I interrupted you on your, in your lacrosse background, uh, so from lacrosse, how did that get into, into the fishing? Yeah. So when I went to school at Endicott, lacrosse was a huge part of it. Another part of it, why I went to Endicott was, uh, to be a teacher. So I was an elementary education major, uh, at Endicott. And so when I graduated, I got my first teaching job just North of Beverly, uh, North of Endicott in <laughs> Manchester by the sea, Massachusetts. Um, and so when I was teaching there, I would fish in the summers. So I wasn't playing lacrosse anymore. Um, and so I was fishing all the time. And gotcha. so there's obviously stripers there. And I fell in love with it. My coworker, um, her, her husband and son fish a lot. So they took me. Um, and then I just kind of never looked back. Basically. So is that all striper or like you're just kind of catching whatever at that time? Bluefish, stripers, everything, anything available or, or yeah, were you so targeting them at that point? I was definitely targeting stripers. So basically Boston North Shore, our striper run, they get here beginning mid-May and they stay here till usually end of September, sometimes mid-October. Right. And on. that's really what we have to chase north of Boston. I mean, there's some flounder sometimes, bluefish every so often, uh, but really south of the Cape is where they get the diversity of species, black sea bass, tatog, uh, albacore, bonito, all that good stuff. Yeah. And so with your stripers, um, you just started fishing more and more. And um, what, when, at what point did this become any sort of a – profession or to think that you were going to be able to make any sort of a profession out of it? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's kind of, uh, I love hearing all the stories in your podcast and talking to people, how they found their way in the industry or guiding or et cetera. And mine was unique. As I said, I went to be school to be a teacher. I taught fourth grade for six years. I got my principal license. I thought I was going to be, you know, principal or administrator. But, uh, in 2012, I met my uh, good buddy, Matt Zimmerman, um, fellow Endicott graduate. He was a hockey player. I was a lacrosse player and we've just loved fishing together. We just were buddies. You know, you find that one buddy that loves it just as much as you. And we went all the time. And then he kind of had this name, why not with a K. So why not fishing? And we started making some connections with friends, going to fishing shows, you know, had a little bit of following just individually. And I, 2014, we actually took a fishing trip up North in the fall 2013. I said, what do you want to do? You want to try to, you know, make something of this and what something was, what something was, no one knew. But we had the name, we had a following. We uh, kicked it off in the spring of 2014 with just like a website launch. We had the Instagram at the time. Um, we just did a party. We just did a launch party. All of our friends that you know knew we loved fishing came. We maybe had like I don't know 50 people or so. Gave away some gear, had some co, just had a blast. And then uh, that summer we had a little bit of apparel and a little bit of following, and just kind of followed it from there. So when you first you know, you're talking, you want to make something of this and then you just have a party. Like, did you, did you have, <laughs> you know, like we're going to we have did. a fishing company. Well, <laughs> this is very similar to another very successful story that I know of that two guys that wanted to have a fishing company and they didn't know quite what it was going to look like. And they just knew they wanted a fishing company. And I'll tell you which one it was in just a minute. But, yep. um, so is that kind of where you were? Like, you're just going to, we're going to decide that we're going to make our living in fishing. We have a cool name we got a lot of friends. Let's have a party and let's see what happens. Like, is it almost it's, like that? Because it kind of sounds like, like that. that. Well, it's, it's like, I never, I had no idea. It was just like, I love fishing. I love 
bringing people together. I love the community. I love the people we met and we made all these great fishing friends. We always joke like fishing friends are our best friends. Other, you know, we never had that growing up, but fishing friends different than other people. We all have friends outside fishing, but if you don't love it, you don't get it. And so we love sharing those stories and tactics and tips with each other. And so I never thought it was going to be a company. I didn't even know that's what it was, right? It was just us getting together and I was teaching. I was going to be a teacher and I was going to be a principal and that's what I was going to do. And so we kind of did that that first year, 2014. And then we we're like, you know what? We don't want to wait. Our, in New England, our fishing season is short, yeah. May to September, really. Maybe a little bit April to October if you want to extend it. But we're sitting there in the winter and said, I don't want to wait till May to see all these friends again start talking fishing. So we just came up with the idea of the name Why Not Wednesdays. So we did one, one Wednesday a month, January, February, March, April, and then we did our launch party again. And we just picked different topics. So we started in January, what was close to our hearts with uh, saltwater fishing night. Then the next month we did freshwater fishing night. Then we did a fly fishing night and a kayak and sup fishing night and just had different styles. And we just continued to attract more and more people to these different events. And so when you, when you first start, when you first start doing this, like what's the, what's the first venue? Is it like a bar or restaurant or do you have like, what, how does that look? Like you, you decide that, okay, we're going to do this. Why not Wednesday? Maybe, maybe somebody will show up. Maybe they won't show up, but we're going to commit to doing it. Sounds like that's kind of where you, where you were. So what kind of venue did you choose? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we just, uh, we picked, uh, I think the name of it was flying saucer in Salem, Massachusetts. That's where I was living at the time. And it was just a regular restaurant. I had, you know, buddies I asked around said, who wants to host us? We didn't have any money. We weren't making any money. So it kind of needed to be for free. Uh, not kind of, it did need to be for free. <laughs> um, and so we just asked around, tried to find a space and we had no idea when we were, you know, selling it to these places, what it was. They're like, what is it? You want to bring fishermen in here? You want to cast? We're like, no, we just want to, you know, do a little show, set up like, you know, a couple plug makers, things like that, show it off and do a raffle. And they're like, all right, I guess you can kind of go to this corner of the room. You know, we had room for maybe 20, 30 people at most. And we packed that place the first night and we were like, wow, the next one, we need to find a much bigger spot. Wow. And so the people that were coming, they all just kind of felt the same as you. They were kind of longing for this community that exists during the fishing season and kind of disappears in the winter and, and they want to get together and share ideas and, and just, or, or was it more that they wanted to get together? I think it was just, they wanted to, people just wanted to get together, right. And just talk about fishing and share fishing stories. And we kind of gave a structure to that. And I think it's also, we we're, on the age of like fishing clubs. I don't know. I'm sure in Florida and other areas of the country, there's huge fishing clubs that have hundreds of years of different history and things like that. And up North, it was kind of different of these striper clubs. So they had hundreds of members, you know, different at waned and waxed, but it was very close minded, not sharing stories or tactics. And it was very secret and not wanting to tell people where their spots were. And just naturally who I am and who Matt is kind of attracted a different type of audience of people that wanted to share. Um, and it wasn't like we were just sharing fishing spots and saying, go here. It was more of the stories, the why, the how, the excitement of it that you can't really get, you know, over the internet mm -hmm. unless you come together. So right. we just kind of found that natural groove that just worked. So how did, how did this, uh, why not Wednesdays kind of evolve over time from that first one to whatever it looks like today? Yeah, that's a great question. So that was winter 2015. And then we ran the launch party again. And then, we got reached out to by a friend in Maine. Again, we're in Massachusetts. We're like, you know, Boston, North shore kind of spreading around. And then our buddy, Ben Whitehead said, Hey, I love what you guys are doing. Do you want to run a tournament up here in Maine? We said, sure. So we put it together and ran our first tournament fly fishing only 
teams of two in Maine, one day tournament, very similar to the cheeky tournament, which we love fishing in down in Cape Cod. And we just put that together. And then we did another one in the fall. And we kind of realized that this event type thing that we're doing, these gatherings was really our niche. And we found that, you know, different tournaments and events that we started doing in Massachusetts, around New England, we did them in Rhode Island, Connecticut, where I'm from, New York, Vermont, Maine people just wanted these different pop-up meetings, which was tough because I was in Massachusetts and teaching and trying to do these events during the week and during the winter and during the summer, but it was so much fun and I loved it. You didn't realize the, you know, the work that you're putting into it. Yeah. So are you charging like admission to these things? Where, where, how do you continue to make this sustainable? Like, I mean, yeah, for it to go for, I mean, what, five years now has to be something that is sustainable. So is there some sort of a, a profit that's coming off of it? Yeah. So basically we, the tournaments is where we made the money, okay. not a ton of money, but the, uh, the meetups were always free. Um, the, and the tournaments is where we charge people for events. And then we also hosted different film tours, like the fly fishing film tour. So we charge for those. And then it was always just trying to figure it out. At one point we were trying to figure out, are we a club? Are we going to charge like a team membership? Are we going to develop a mobile app that works to connect people and charge people that way? Um, and then we had these brand relationships. So we started working with brands like Cheeky and Buff and Costa and Yeti. And we started to realize that we're, you know, doing this brand marketing service that these companies were sending product, but then they were able to grow that relationship to cash and product. Mm-hmm. So that's where we found our most recent niche as an event marketing company. That's cool. And so yeah, it was really neat. in your, in your kind of searching for your identity, Kind of your, 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 are we a club? Are we a, you know, are we an event marketing? Like what, what is it? How did you, how did you kind of work through that? Did you and Matt have like differences in opinion or kind of were you on the same page the whole time? Or how did you kind of come to terms with what it is that you, that you felt like you were and where the, where the future was? That's a great question. I mean, it was always trying to figure it out. Both Matt and I, didn't have background in entrepreneurship or business like this. Again, my background was in teaching. We both love fishing, um, but we never started our own company before. We were buddies, you know, good friends. So it was always back and forth trying to figure it out. And what are we, what are we trying to do? I think it always had a little bit more motivation to make quote unquote something of it versus Matt just loved being a part of it and enjoying it and love fishing and the friends. And so it was always, you know, tough and go and hit and go and figuring it out. But when we remained to our core of the community part, that's where we always found kind of our home. Um, and as far as figuring out the business of it, most recently brought on a partner, Bo Tabo, and he helped us kind of nail in and what, you know, where's the business of why not, you know, this is fun. It's a great group. Um, but what's the business of it? And that event marketing piece is where it kind of found its most, you know, recent and solid home of what we actually do. Yeah. So now throw another curveball into it Go for it. and you got, you got COVID and yeah. event event planning, like where where do you stand with that? Have you been able to get back onto the event planning? Like what 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 does that look like for you right now? Yeah, so actually, this is again, you know, kind of a good segue that why not is kind of at a hold at the moment. We're trying to figure out where we were. You know, rewind back uh, basically almost a year, year and a half ago. Um, as I mentioned, Costa was one of our long term partners, and they had always worked really closely with us. One of our first and biggest partner. But they actually brought me on board. Uh, we're looking for a new inshore community leader, and they brought me on board full time. So I'm actually full time with Costa in the market fishing marketing team now. Okay, and so now why not just kind of uh, is on pause or or 
What? Yeah, we're still staying active as far as social and, you know, reposting and sharing the love of fishing and the vibe on Instagram. But as far as events and tournaments, it's kind of taking a pause. As you mentioned with COVID, it's not really the best time to do it. You know, we're entertaining and looking into different, you know, virtual options, online options. And obviously my time isn't fully in it anymore when my full-time job is with Costa. So trying to figure out what the next step is, what it's going to look like, where the best home for it is coming into 2021. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that will draw both eyes and compliments. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. We also offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. As spring makes its way into summer, stay cool in a short-sleeve, moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tecovis' ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit Tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And don't go gently, y'all. So how did you transition out of teaching though? Like you, we kind of, we kind of glossed over that. Yeah, like you were, right. you were a teacher, you had this why not thing on the side and yeah. now, now you're, you've, you've moved away from teaching, I guess, cause you're full-time uh, community leader now. Yeah. So the switch was in fall, what was it? No, spring of 2015. You know, I knew I was kind of feeling this pull into the fishing and trying to make something of it where the jump was and, it never makes sense, right? So you're trying to look back and figure it out. I had an opportunity. I got a job offer back at Endicott to be uh, assistant director of admission as well as uh, assistant lacrosse coach. So I got to go back there for two years. And I knew from there would be my next jump. Would I stay in higher ed and stay at that level in admissions or coaching? Would I go back to elementary ed and be a principal or administrator? Or would I make a jump in the fishing industry? Not sure what that looks like. You know, Always in the back of my head, wanting why not to be that full-time push? but never knowing how it would look. Um, and so I did that for two years, uh, 2015, summer 2016, then summer 2017. Um, was kind of a shake, tried to go, trying to figure out where I was going to be. And was still doing the why not thing part-time, was at On The Water Magazine for a little bit. And then I just got a part-time job in sales while I was making why not happen before I made the jump to Costa. Right. How's your wife dealing with all of that uncertainty <laughs> while you're having, it's, while you're uh, having babies? <laughs> it is a lot to say the least. I mean, I think she's happy now that I'm quote unquote settled, let alone this year's not really settling for anyone. Um, but I, the, I love teaching. I love kids and I love, you know, teach, you know coaching. And so the, the hardest thing about teaching was the schedule is that I, you know, I love my family. I knew I was going to have kids and knew I want to spend time with them, but to be in a school year, I mean, everyone says he has the summers off and a lot of, you know, teachers do guide and fish in the summer, mm -hmm. but to not be able to, you know, take a couple of days there or a week there to go fish or be with family or have a flexible schedule was really tough for me. Yeah. Yeah. So did you, do you, do you do any guiding or did you ever do any guiding or you you were kind of more along the, the, the why not? Deal. No, that's a great question. I mean, that's what kind of, when people are always trying to figure out what why not was, they're like, are you in Mac guides? What do you do? Um, so we do a lot of shore fishing. We mentioned stand up paddleboard and kayak fishing. 
I've done the only guiding I've done so far is kayak fishing, but I have my captain's license and I look in, you know, trying to find the right time. I will be running charters mostly on a part-time basis next year as well out of Boston Harbor. That's interesting. So with the, uh, with the, you know, you're, you're getting these people uh, together with, with why not, it seems like there would be kind of a, a good opportunity to kind of lead towards the conservation angle if they're, you know, cause I, I don't, I'm not real familiar with a lot of the conservation issues that you have up there, but I know that there are some, and we've talked about yep. striped bass on this podcast a number of times before, but did that ever become a, an angle that you were kind of looking towards? For sure. No, I appreciate the question there. And conservation has always been top of mind for us. It's where all of our tournaments that we've always run are only catch and release. So we've only ever run catch photo release tournaments. Uh, we're always proponents of catch and release and specifically striped bass, which are severely overfished at the moment. So we're always trying to bring that to light and make catch and release cool. Everyone used to have, you know, bring the dead fish back to the dock and show it off. And we're trying, not just us, but many people and part of the movement of that picture of the striper that, you know, keep them wet, that keep fish wet momentum of let them go so more people can catch it, especially now that we're having kids. We want there to be a future of the fishery is always super important. Mm -hmm. What about the, um, the bigger kind of, I don't know, I think handling the fish is, is obviously, I think that's very important and, and anglers need to be, you know, ha handling the fish and, you know, catch and release and all that is, is very important, but the number of fish that are being caught by recreational anglers and mishandled is nothing compared to what a giant uh, commercial operation could be doing to any fishery, whether that's a striped bass fishery or, or, you know, mullet or Jack Ravels or bonefish or permit or tarpon or whatever, uh, bluefin tuna, anything. So are there bigger overarching kind of uh, things at play? I know that you have some big, um, from what I have understand, or I'll let you tell me, because I was just understanding that the cosmetic industry uses a lot of bunker from yeah. your area. Is that correct? I, I don't know about what those big operations look like, but I know that the bunker is, you know, the Menhaden is a, is a, that's like our mullet, right? Like or yeah. our pilchard for you. That's the, yeah. the, the, you know, the bottom of the pyramid. That's, that's what everything eats. Right. So yeah. what, what's the health of, of the bait? Yeah. So the bait is one thing. And you asked, is it part of a bigger conversation that the hard thing in stripers is, you know, just to give a little history and 30,000 perspective is the striped bass is managed by the Atlantic States fishery marine corporate or whatever, ASFMC. And so that's all the 13 States on the Northeast from Maine, all the way down to North Carolina, even though they don't have striped bass. And so that's a really hard thing is you have this species that travels from the Chesapeake all the way north to Maine in Canada and goes through all these different fisheries. And each state has different regulations, even though they, the overall ASFMC comes down and says, you know, here's what we think is each state can do something called conservation equivalencies, which means as long as they're taking the same amount of fish in the way they want to, that you know, they could put that in regulation. So in the past, when I first got into stripers, it was always two stripers at 28 inches is what you could keep. You know, most people, or at least most of my friends did not even keep one, but then most recently went to one at 28. And then this past year was actually the first year um, that we've had a slot limit. So we can only keep fish between 28 and 35 inches. Hmm. And do, 
in your experience, do, are most people releasing the fish or, or is it still very traditional to, you know, keep your striper? Uh, I would imagine that's a very traditional thing to, to do, you know, to bring one home. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely the, that aspect, the historical aspect and it's table fair and there is a commercial fishery for striped bass. The hard thing is, is again, as I mentioned, overfishing is occurring, striped bass are overfished and there just aren't many slot fish. I mean, this year I've caught, you know, schoolies at the beginning of the year, but since then only over slot fish. And that's just what's around. There just aren't the, those fish in the slot. And it's not just here in Boston. I hear the same story North to the Cape, to Connecticut, to Rhode Island, New York. It's, it's tough right now. So what's an average fish, like a, a, a above slot fish you're catching? What, what size fish is that that you're seeing? Anywhere mostly? like the, the class of fish that we've seen this year, no, just North of Boston in Boston is like, 36, 37, 38 inches, all the way up to 48, 50 inches. They're just huge wow. fish. Yeah. Wow. So what does that say to you about the health of the fishery? It says it's extremely unhealthy. Uh, it's scary. I mean, I admittedly so don't have a 20, 30 year history of fishing for them. I've only seen, you know, recently really the past 10 years of really actively seeing the fishery, but even I've seen the decline recently and hearing stories about what people used to see is scary. And there was a moratorium on them before. And it was the only thing that really brought them back that worked before is one striper at 35 inches and above, which I would love to see, or a higher slot, 35 to 39 inches. Because right now we have a good school class of 2011, 2015 breeding class that are getting into that slot. And so if they're not protected, those fish are going to get wiped out, which would be really not so good. Wow. Yeah. And, and compounding that you have, 13 states trying to all manage probably none of them can come up with the same, the same, uh, regulations, right? And not only can they not, they're actively fighting to not have it and not to call out states that, you know, I don't accurately know it, but that, you know, states more South than Massachusetts, we can say that are trying to take, they're always trying to take as much as they can. So what happened is the SFMC finally had to admit that overfishing is occurring. So they need to really reduce the moratorium or sorry, reduce the amount mortality of fish. And so they said, all right, 17% reduction coastwide. But then each state said, all right, we only need to reduce our state by 17, but that's not going to get a full reduction of 17%. Because mm. some states took more than others, obviously. Yeah. And then, you know, when you're saying, you know, the states are taking more than others, what what does that look like on the big commercial operations? Like, is that is that a... Uh, somebody that's what do those operations look like the 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 that are overfishing the stripers is it yeah so the striper overfishing is a little bit different obviously than the manhaden overfishing the tough or thing both with, i mean i'm interested yeah, sure. in both what both look like yeah so for stripers it's tough because it's more to you know my recent understanding the amount of licenses there are for commercial fishing i don't want to take anyone's livelihood away for it i mean i would argue that i would love this striped bass was a game fish like tarpon it might not work that way you know i think it's something more similar to like a redfish or snook, man, snook management right. might make more sense but are we don't have a healthy stock yet so the hard thing with commercial fishermen for striper is anybody can go get a commercial license and that's you know weekend warriors that are just going to get a paycheck and fill their boat up and right now, commercial fishermen can also keep fish over 35 when recreational can only keep, again, that slot 28 to 35. So it's an unfortunate pitting of recreational versus commercial when we should really all be managing for abundance. And the more fish there are, the better it is for everybody. Wow. But anybody can go get a commercial license. I mean, not quote unquote everybody, but there are, 
you can, there's, it's very easy, at least in Massachusetts, easy commercial license. Wow. Okay. And then, and their limit is you say one fish over 35 inches, but what, how many, what's their pound? No, so, the they, so the way Massachusetts is made, I can't speak to the other species, uh, states. I don't know them as well. There's Monday and Wednesday, the commercial fishery is open and each boat or each tag holder can keep 15 fish. Wow. So like basically, a- you know, I was telling the story, like, or talking a little earlier about what the fishery we have here in Boston is, you know, those huge fish, 38 to 48 inches, which is awesome. We've had this ridiculous bite that's lasted three or four times a summer for multiple days on end, which is great when we're, you know, catching release, throwing top waters, throwing flies, having tuna in the mix. But then there's no fish in the Cape. There's no fish in Rhode Island. There's no fish in Connecticut. So everyone finds out about this bite that's going on for multiple days. And I've seen boats out there that I've never seen before. There's probably 100, 150 boats out there someday on Mondays and Wednesdays just killing these fish, you know, that we're releasing and letting them go back and live. So it's tough to see that. Yeah. Yeah, that is tough. What's the, what's the relationship like between the, the recreational guys and the, <laughs> and the commercial guys? Unfor- I mean, unfortunately, not good. And that's the hard part is that the, just the way the regulations have been set up and every meeting we go to, it's just they're pitting against each other because everyone's looking for their share of the pie where, you know, we should be, as I mentioned before, managing for the abundance of the species. The more fish that are out there, the better it is for everybody. If there's no stripers, no one's going to be buying them at the restaurant because they're not there. No one's going to be buying gear to go get them. Um, and that word, that tagline managing from abundance, I steal from a conservation group that I'm a huge supporter of that we work closely with, uh, American Saltwater Guides Association. That's newly form- formed over the past two years, but the leaders on there have been around in policy for 10, 20 years on end. And they are really making a push to try to unify us coastwide, even though it's called the Guides Association, is that recreational voice angler trying to bring it together to help the species. Now, are they, are they centered uh, in the Northeast? Um, I, I, don't know, I don't know that group as far as Florida goes. They would be an awesome guest to have on board. Tony yeah. Frederick or Peter Jenkins or John McMurray or Taylor. Any of those guys are awesome, awesome guys and can speak much better to the science and the work they're doing, which is, again, amazing. But they're uh, based in D.C., um, and they have board members up and down the East Coast, and they just, they're adding board members down to Florida. And their most, their most recent um, you know, fishery that they're championing is striped bass, but then they're also, we're just involved in Menhaden as well. So they're a huge unifying force for that to get rid of all these hoagie boats, these sailing boats from you know, Maryland all the way north to Boston Harbor and north of us. Yeah. And those pogie boats, those are, um, a lot for the cosmetic industry. Is that where most of that goes? Yeah. I think it's like fish oil or I don't know if it's cosmetic or I don't know the history, but the hard part is that most of these boats are not even owned by American companies. Hmm. They're just coming down here in our waterways, netting all these bunker, killing stripers up here, killing bluefish, killing redfish. It's just, they should not be able to fish inshore waters. I mean, there's times when I'm out, you know, on a snag and drop bite in Boston Harbor and you just see them go through and you know, there's bassin on them. They're not like looking forward to, see, you can't pick out a, a bass and a huge net of pogies. Right. And, you know, I've heard stories and seen some of our, you know, ambassadors down in the Gulf dealing the same thing in Louisiana with huge redfish just floating everywhere. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. What's the answer? Well, luckily there was some, you know, landmark legislation this year to kick them out and finally find them for overfishing and, you know, give a little relief. And that big bite that we've seen is on bunker. So you'll see the, you know, the return is when the bait fish are there. The stripers and tuna are mixed in on them, but it's scary to see them on a bunker without any bass on them. Hmm. Where in years past, we've seen, you know, there shouldn't be a school of pogies that aren't harassed by bass everywhere. And there's just not enough bass to do that right now. Wow. That's crazy. 
So the bait has yeah. the bait is getting a little bit of relief, and I guess so. Yeah, and then the there's just not enough fish to to be eating it all. That's crazy. Um, so uh, you know, it's something that I'm super interested in, obviously, in a passionate striper angler and lots of friends in the industry that we rely on them. So we're gonna you know keep our eye on the fight over the next couple of years to see what happens, and hopefully we can get to a point where we don't have to go to a moratorium again and not allow fishing for stripers. That seems like a really, you know, that's a big deal. Like for anglers to, you know, put a almost like a self-imposed moratorium on the last one. How did that go down on the on the last moratorium? Was that was that I, anglers lobbying for that or did that go down otherwise? Yeah, I don't want I'm not sure exactly kind of the history of how it all how it all came to be. Obviously much different time then 30 40 years ago than we are today, so I'm not sure how similar it was or what happened. The only thing I know is that it did work. <laughs> there was yeah. times where there's zero stripers, no one was fishing for them. And then it worked. And then if you, you know, if you leave them alone, they're obviously going to come back, but it's scary to think about not fishing them for many, many years. Yeah. Yeah, that is man. Um, although, you know, mother, mother nature is, is incredibly resilient in my experience. And if you give them a chance, if you give mother nature a chance, usually, usually things, things return, you know, unless there's some kind of major, major issue that like a water quality issue that, that, you know, you got to get to the source at some point. But, uh, you know, we've seen massive, uh, rebound with, with the mullet and then with the redfish. And it's a similar kind of a, a relationship there where, you know, when we had the mullet boats in, in Florida, the mullet were just getting just, killed i mean like you're like your bunker i mean just yeah these people were very good at what they were doing they were mm-hmm. very very good at it and you know the result of somebody being very very good at a at a fishing technique that is highly effective is that they catch them all you know i mean <laughs> they really catch them all and yeah. uh yeah. with wow. uh with the help of um you know a, a lot of of really good sportsmen and and uh florida sportsman magazine and uh others um they they got the nets stopped and then shortly after that the redfish population rebounded you know yep. better than anyone had hoped for That's and amazing. uh yeah so i mean it can it can happen but it sounds like you guys you, you got so many challenges right now with all of the different states that seems to be a major challenge like that it's is, hard enough to get yeah one state for, yeah. to, to make a decision on something. <laughs> now you've got to deal with 13 in each state, especially where you are. The states are very small. And, and yeah. you know, so one state makes a decision. It affects the state on, you know, north and south of of them, right? Yeah, and just to highlight the craziness of that, you know, one of the most popular spots is just south of Rhode Island. And you're fishing in Rhode Island, New York, Connecticut waters, all in, and kind of Massachusetts, overlap, like all in one spot. So there's four, three or four different states fish swimming in and out. And then you're also dealing, you can only fish for stripers within the three mile limit. And those boats are like, right. The stripers are right on the edge of that. So it's really hard to manage. So when you're fishing an area like that, do all the States kind of acknowledge each other's licenses or how do you have to be licensed in all those different States? Yeah. Some States do have reciprocity. How do you say that word? (laughs) Reciprocity. Reciprocity. Yeah. There we go. I used to be a teacher. (laughs) Uh, so some states do, some states don't, but it's just it's just a big cluster because the the spot they fish don't want to you know blow it up even more than it needs to. It's like a spot that's popular at night, 
Um, and so it's so hard to manage that. It's, you couldn't have enough boats out there to manage. I have heard recently this year that there was more enforcement, which is great. Um, but it's just that's the hard thing too when you think of all these fisheries. You get impossible to enforce that coastwide. You know, and there's different things. One of the cool studies um, that I was able to see that I don't know if it's published yet, but uh, they did a striper tagging study where they spawned. So some in Hudson, some in the Chesapeake, and where they ended up all the way from Maine, Connecticut, Boston, et cetera, is all these fish swim north through the Cape Cod Canal or they go around the Cape Cod Canal. And so one of the cool things they found is like on the way up, the stripers split half and half, some around Provincetown, half through the Cape Cod Canal. Some go north to the South Shore, Boston, you know, New Hampshire, Maine. And then those fish are resident. They notice that those fish come back to those same spots every year, which is really cool to see. But it's also scary because, as I mentioned before, those overfishing spots like Cape Cod got overfished, then the next spot got overfished, and now the fish are in Boston. Once those fish are overfished, they're not coming back here anymore. Wow. And it's just tough to see that. But a cool thing they noticed in that study is when the fish go south in the um, fall, 70% of those fish go through the Cape Cod Canal. And that's when they notice a lot of those tags disappear was in the fall. So they didn't notice many tags or die-offs, you know, 300 tags. But when they lost most of those tags, you know, if a fish was killed or taken out, it was in the fall through the Cape Cod Canal. And so there's, there was a push this summer, um, and it went through that the commercial fishery was closed in the Cape Cod Canal. But I know a lot of people, myself included, would love to see the Cape Cod Canal catch and release only. Hmm. How would that go it's over? A, um, well, in some places with people like me and probably not so well with other people, right. it's just, it's a fish highway. It's the, the best chance you can get, obviously at certain tides, but at big fish from shore, you can, there's seven miles of access on either side. So 14 miles of, you know, mostly fishable water that anybody can go buy a rod and reel and a top water plug or a jig. You wait for those breaking tides or you wait for the morning or an evening and you can crush fish on top water, never, you know, 40 pound fish, not anymore as many without ever catching a striper in your life. Wow. Which is great. I think it's awesome access and really fun to go see. But if you have people, you know, there's, you see license plate from New York, New Jersey, Rhode Island, Connecticut coming all the way up and they're killing these fish. What's the point? Yeah. It just becomes this like shooting gallery, these fish trying to go through and survive. Do you think, um, like it's seven miles long is where, where most of these, Fish are being fished Yeah, for. through the Cape, Cod, the Cape Cod Canal. Yep, seven miles. Yeah. Has that ever been closed down to fishing entirely? Not that I know of, at least. Possibly, but not in the recent future or yeah. recent past, I should say. That's the danger, you know, like I, I don't ever like infighting between two groups. Like it yeah. seems like when you get the commercial guys fighting against the recreational guys um, or fly fishermen versus bait fishermen or whoever, you get p two yeah. groups fighting against one another. Now the numbers are half what they were before. And it's just real easy for somebody to just say, well, we don't have enough. This is obviously a big problem. We don't have enough law enforcement to manage this. So we're just going to shut it down. Like, yeah. or I mean, this is just this, it's just this little seven mile bridge, you know, seven mile little area. Yeah. Well, couldn't we save a lot of money if we just shut this down and, and let yeah. no one fish here? I mean, yeah. that is obviously the danger of, of something sure. like that, especially when you have a, a really small area is that you, I mean, I, I would consider a seven mile area to be really small when we're talking about sure, the whole ocean. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's not small when you're walking along there, you know, it seems like you could fish for the rest of your life down, you, yeah. you go down this area, but um, something like that, where it's really, really small, 
you know, it, it tends, it, it would tend to just, and I don't know anything about your area or anything, but it would no just worries. tend to be like, there would be a danger for the commercial guys that they would just shut it down. And there's a danger for the recreational guys that they just shut it down and nobody can fish there. And it's a good solution for the, for the law enforcement because now they don't have to, you know, deploy all these people to that one little area. They just make sure that nobody goes in there. And well, that's so, not yeah. an answer that anybody no, wants, right? For sure. Let me expand a little bit on like my, you know, point of view on it is that it's, I don't think they should shut it down. I think it should be fishing. You know, you can ride your bike on the canal. It's a great part of the summer and people camp out and love and live there. The hard part about it is it's so such easy access and you have people poaching. It's the easiest spot to poach because you can go catch a fish, hide it under a rock, hide it in a car, whatever. And if it's your, if you shut it down just to keeping fish, and as many people want to go to fish, but it's a lot easier to say you can't keep one where somebody's like, oh, I only have one fish. You look behind the you know, bush, there's 10 dead stripers. Whoa. It's, it's amazing. And that happens, I mean, not just in the Cape Cod Canal. It happens up and down the coast for sure. But, you know, it's all about education and it's all about telling people like, you know, this resource needs to be managed and taken care of. We can't just kill everything because there's going to be nothing there the next year. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Right. That sounds like, I don't know, it sounds like, like, uh, I don't know. It kind of has a, a a feeling of of Boca Grande, and that's not a place that I fish either. But it's a very small area with a high density of fish in there. And then you had yeah. you had multiple groups kind of disagreeing with the way that you should fish in it. And yeah, you know there was a there was kind of a danger where it's just like, well, maybe maybe the solution is just to not let anybody fish there. And, yeah, you know, luckily it didn't didn't happen like that. But that's always a danger when you when you get groups split. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't think that's the answer. I think the answer is For like sure. you say, like education, like, like yeah. ex explain to people um, why this is important. Like the way that you did, like 70% of the spawning yeah. fish are coming through here. If yeah. you're going to kill a fish anywhere, do it at another time of the year in a different yeah. place, because this is <laughs> a high shoot, likelihood that, fish in the barrel. Right, that you're, that you're killing fish that, that have babies. And that's not good for, that's not good for the future. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I got to get up there and, and go. Cause I know that it's super beautiful. I've been in Nantucket before and, and, uh, not fishing though. And, um, you know, that, that area. Yeah. I went there on a family trip when I was a kid. Um, but it, it's, uh, it's just a beautiful area. It's really cool. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would love to have you up here. You're welcome anytime. I mean, I'll be again running trips in Boston next year. So come hop on. The best part of where I live in Winthrop specifically is I'm 10 minutes from the airport. So I tell people all the time, you fly into Boston, go for a fishing trip, jump back on your plane wherever you're going. Nice. That's <laughs> Maybe cool. Not so now with Corona time. Let's but. talk about let's talk about like the uh the way that the year looks, like when for you sure. kind of start getting geared up for fishing, what they're looking. I mean, like when they first start showing up, that's always the most exciting time for me with the tarpon is like the not not the heat of the season like that's that's exciting and nice but 
it's like those first couple of days where the weather just gets just right. And you're like, man, they're coming today. And then <laughs> they don't. And and then yeah. that's even more exciting because you're like, yeah, God, right. seems like they should have come today, but they didn't. Uh, yeah. What, what does it look like up there? Because it's same sim, similar kind of thing, right? It's a migratory fish. They're going to they're yep. gonna move through an area. So they're not going to be there one day and then they're going to start trickling in and then it's going to be like on. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. So as I mentioned, I'm in Boston and uh, the fish are coming north from the Chesapeake. So the stripers, most of them go there. There's a lot of research recently of, you know, some fish in the Hudson and other tribute, uh, tri tidal rivers up and down the coast of these spawning striper stocks. So it's definitely getting more and more spread out. But the vast majority are going, starting in Chesapeake, they start coming north in April. Um, so they hit New Jersey, New York, um, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and they could get to me in Boston, North Shore, Massachusetts usually first second week of May, so that's when you know we start going out. There's been years we catch them at the end of April. Maybe they're holdover fish. Maybe they're fresh. There's been years that we haven't gotten to like 14th or 15th of May on a cold winter, but usually you can bet on um, Mother's Day that the stripers are pretty much here. Okay, and what is the what is the very earliest part of the season look like? Where you go out there a couple of days and you're kind of like this. It's probably too early, but yeah, I mean, like yeah. what what would you be doing? to see like to to try to find them when you think it's probably too early yeah so when we're going out there i mean we're the, when it's on it's there you're they're going to be blitzing schoolies so you're yeah. usually getting those smaller fish so you'll see birds you'll see bait you know kind of areas and when it's too early like we're just going to spots that we know you know moving tide usually on an outgoing afternoon tide when the inner harbor waters or inner tidal waters that heat it up so the stripers are in they're kind of following the bait out in the afternoon it's typically the best time to find them. I'm a big light tackle guy and fly fishing guy. So most of the time, at the beginning of the season, we'll stick one on like a little paddle tail, like a white owl gags or hoagie or something like that. And um, then we switch over to the fly. You always want to be the first one to catch one on the fly, first to catch from shore, first to catch from lure. So there's some spots on the North Shore that there's some really great rivers. Here in Boston, it's more of kind of like an open water hunt. Um, but it's really that first month from Mother's Day until about, you know, first, second week of June, sometimes earlier that we get those keepers. But the beginning of the season is all about numbers, getting that first one, seeing a bunch, you know, getting a couple, a 25 inch striper feels big at that time. So you're catching a lot of 18 to 20 inches, um, but you just don't care. But then there is a time when you do care and you just want some big size fish. <laughs> yeah. And then it seems like, you know, the ones that you were talking about before, I mean, 50 incher, that's that's huge. Didn't, isn't That's that what you fish. said? Like those, that yeah. you're seeing some of those giant fish right now. Yeah. Those are some giant stripers. So that's, you know, be basically mother's day, the first couple of weeks of May, we start seeing, you know, it's kind of cool where we are in Boston. Cause you hear the reports and you hear the migration, you hear, a, you know, see your friends catching these big fish when it happens. And it's usually, you know, we're a week or two later than the Cape, but sometimes, you know, when the fishing's good and the striper population is healthy, you'll get the big push to the canal. And we usually see it about, you know, five to seven days after that on the North shore. So those fish really kind of move up. Um, and here in Boston, North shore, we do have a great resident fisheries. So when they do get here, they do stay. Um, and then once they're here, usually that first week of June um, and through June is just lights out for big fish. Nice. Sounds so that's awesome. when we're going out with the big top water plugs, soft plastics to fly mackerel, usually early in the season, but more recently the past couple of years are a lot more, a lot of more bunker. Um, but we're a lot of me and myself and Zim and all of our friends are top water junkies. We throw top water. I probably throw top water 90, 95% of the time. And there's some hardcore anglers, um, that, that dedicate their life to, to the, the striped bass. 
Um, no I love my it. friend. Uh, my friend Jamie Howard had that movie running, yeah. running the coast. Running the coast. And man, hardcore man, hardcore. Uh, yeah, what cool. what type of angler, in your opinion? Like you got, I mean, what was cool about that movie is that like he showed all the different types of anglers. You got these, you got these boat anglers and they're all super serious, but then you got these guys that are going to the beach and they're just, they're fishing in these waves. And it's like, man, I don't know, super hardcore. And then you got guys that are fly fishing like that. And then you got guys that are fishing with the big, the big two handed giant surf rods and stuff. Like where is the, where is the gnarliest, group of of striper anglers hanging out i would say i mean so much respect to the surf guys that are out there you know picking their rock going to their spot being out there from you know 8 p.m to 6 a.m and going to work the next day those guys are salty salty of the earth super skilled guys are dialed in you know making their own plugs fishing eels eel skins jigs and I've done it before. I like it. It's fun. But with the family now and kids and a schedule, it's like for me, I, my jam is, you know, going out in the morning for four hours or an evening every time and anytime you could, or sometimes an overnight, but those surf anglers are just so dedicated. It's really cool to see their success. And they're definitely, that's hard about, about striper fishing too, is you, when you're on a boat, the fish move around and you can kind of find them. Those surf anglers, there's some rocks that if you're a hundred feet to the right, you'll catch nothing. And you're on your rock and you can, you know, bang 20 good fish in a night. So they have to be super secretive of their spots. Otherwise, you know, they've lost access in the past too. If you know, blow up that spot. Yeah. And then the way that you make sure you have that rock is to obviously be there long before anybody else gets there. So not only are you going to fish all night, but you're going to, you're going to be there early so that you can be on that rock. So now you're going to be there all afternoon and then the fishing is going to start up and you're going to be there all night. Like I'm serious. Those guys are super gnarly like into it like as much as anybody i've ever seen for any species those guys are hardcore oh it's awesome it's what's cool about stripers too you know talking about there's so many different ways to get them i mean you can be somebody just starting off and you know that first summer catch your first fish which awesome and you can be somebody that's done your whole life and now you're just on a hunt for a 50 pounder um you can catch them deep water 100 plus feet you can catch them in a foot of water sight casting them they're just such a awesome species i love fishing for them yeah and and you like uh fly fishing and so when you're fly fishing are you doing that mostly from the boat or do you do some wading or do you do like shallow water stuff what do you like to do yeah so fly fishing wise early season you catch them from shore on the boat either one uh, most recently we love throwing these huge beast flies i don't know if you've seen the hollow flies like 13 15 inches long 15 inch um, fly yeah Bob like- Popovic's oh, okay made the hollow fly Bob yeah, Pops. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, our buddy ben wally he lives up in maine He's just an absolute artist. Is just a really good buddy of ours. Helped us with the tournament for many years, and he ties these beautiful, beautiful flies um, that Matt and I love throwing. And us and tons of friends and other people caught huge, huge bass in those flies this year. And the cool thing about fly fishing, I've talked about this before, is the way to get a big striper on fly. The most common way, obviously, is in a blitz if the big fish are going around pogie schools. Um, but have you ever heard, heard of the tease and switch method? Yeah, I mean, well, we we do that like with Jack Cravels and stuff. Yeah. Uh, same thing yeah sailfish and and other other things but yeah uh, you you throw a hookless plug out there or what do you do yeah exactly so those guys you know down in connecticut Rhode island early 2000s mid 2000s you know started it and pulling these huge stripers out of the rock and just kind of putting a fly in front of them we haven't done that a ton in boston because we do uh, a lot of blind casting rocks are out in the you know open water when there's lots of fish but 
definitely the most rewarding way to get a big fish in the fly is just blind casting and the hidden structure. I, I'm interested in the in the kind of bait and switch kind of deal because uh, do you find that do you do that much yourself? I've done it some. I don't do it a ton. Uh, I've been around people that have done it a lot. The most success that I've had it on it is uh, down in Martha's Vineyard with uh, Captain Jamie Boyle. Mm. Um, um, the islands around there. Yeah. Well, we've done that. Um, you know, we we I do it for Jack Cravels all the time. Like you get a beginning angler, yeah. and Jack Cravels are pretty easy to catch. But sometimes you need to cast like eighty or ninety feet to get to where they are, and they chase your stuff, and then they go back to where they were, and you chase. Maybe you're on the edge yeah. of a channel and you can't get out there any further. So that's where, you know, you throw the hookless plug and you bring them right to the boat. And they, you know, I would always have the angler throw right over the top of the line, like yeah. have the, have the plug come back like this, throw over the top of the line. And then the line's coming, you know, the fly's coming like this and you just, cause you can adjust the speed of the, of the plug. And so you could bring them yeah. and you could bring it right under. And then now the fly's just right in front of the fish. And um, that was very, very effective. So. Um, you could get tons of people to catch their first fish on fly like that really easily. And, uh, they, they're, you know, it's, they're doing everything like they're casting, yeah. they're setting the hook. Like it's a real experience. And so you brought the fish to the boat, but it's a real experience. We've tried that with Cobia and, uh, you can do the same thing. Like when Cobia are out there, they can't get the fly out there far enough. You throw the hookless plug out there. But one thing about the Cobia, if they touch that plug, it's over. Like huh. what, what about the stripers? Will you get like the Jack Cravel will chase that plug. They will chew the paint yeah. off the plug. Yes. Yeah. But, and, and, but the Cobias, they, it's a, like a one shot deal. And if you let them grab that plug, they're, they're not coming back and they'll just go, go off. But what, what do the stripers do when you're doing that? Like, can you get multiple bites out of one fish and then get them even hotter like the Jack Cravels, or is it more like the Cobia? Yeah. So the more similar to Jack would be bluefish. Like you can do that yeah, with bluefish right. throw a hookless plug and they'll chase it till the cows come home. There's times when you get a good school of bass and they'll do the same thing and try to outcompete each other for it. Most commonly from what I've seen is you're going to get one or two fish, maybe that kind of follow that plug all the way to the boat. And so it's not so much that they'll hit the plug and lose interest, but they'll only follow it out of the rocks once. Mm. So it's the only, it's not like they, they hit it. It doesn't matter. It's just like, if you're not getting on that first cast, you throw another plug into that rock, there's no other big fish home. That's, that's that fish's rock. Yeah. So he's not falling for it again. He's done. He's like, all right, well, that bait's gone. You didn't get me. So you got to keep moving down the coast. So will that fish like stay there for multiple days or is that kind of that night he's going to be on that rock or um, like, what do you think? I mean, can you use that as like a, a locating kind of a thing? Like you can pull a big fish off of that rock and then maybe you don't get him tonight, but maybe then you go back and throw the fly straight to that rock like you did Definitely. the lure. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, it's like maybe not, you know, that tide cycle or whatever, but usually they're going to hang in the same boulder field, the same rock field, and they're going to have a similar size and they're just going to move. So when you have an outgoing tide, they're going to be behind the other way behind one rock at the end of a tide, they're going to be all the way down. If it gets really high, they're going to move in that general area. So the, you know, there's one specific rock pile we fish near Boston Harbor and you'll get a drift over the flats and you know, they're going to be sitting in that one corner behind those two huge rocks. So then behind one or the other. And if you can get through it and you can get, it's like a special distance where you want to be close enough where you can throw your plug over those rocks, but not too close that you spook them. So when you get that drift, it's like, sometimes you're like, we got the perfect drift and then you're on top of the rock or we got the perfect drift and we're behind it. So recently using trolling motors to spot lock that or control that drift has been much more effective. Nice. And so, um, 
you were telling me earlier that uh, that you had gotten into the offshore kind of world up there as well as as the inshore. Yeah, for sure. Let me just quickly finish the uh, migration here on stripers. I'll go to the offshore world quickly. But so stripers, we get them big in mid June, mid July. Where August is kind of our slow time, so we're in the slow time right now. And then in the next week or so, we're going to pick up the fall run. And we talk about any striped bass anglers. The fall run is what everybody talks about. So they talk about when those fish are getting hungry and they're moving south. And that's the time when you're talking about being there one day and not the next. They'll be there one six-hour tide, and the next tide they're gone. They move fast. Mm. So I remember when I was a teacher, that was the worst time to be in the classroom because <laughs> all my buddies were out there either out early or in late. Like, you miss the bite. It's like you get out of work. They're not there. It's like if it was a Friday morning and Saturday, they're not there. You have to be on that bite. It's just wild. And that's the time where a lot of people get their personal best in that fall run when those huge fish are fat after a summer of feeding and getting fat on bait before they travel south for the winter. Interesting. And that's when you see like those videos, you know, from Jamie's into the, into the, what is it? The running the coast. Oh, running the coast. Excuse me. Yeah. I mean, Montauk is just an area where you used to see those bass just boiling huge bass where people are getting from surf, from the boat, et cetera. And then the cool thing about new England, uh, when you talk about the fall run too, um, is you get Albies and Bonito and Bluefish. So that's basically the New England inshore slam is striped bass, bluefish, uh, Atlantic Bonito, and false albacore Albies, or as you guys call them down south, Bonita. <laughs> yeah. So you you said uh, false albacore and then you have Bonita up yes, there. Yes, we have both. So yep. explain the difference because I've always, you know, we call them Bonita. They're very, very, very prolific in the Florida Keys, but they're really a false yep. albacore, right? Yeah. That's yes. the fish that we're calling a bonita. Now you called another fish a bonita up there. And what so you have the false albacore and a bonita, which so is different might, than the bonita we have in the in the keys? <laughs> yeah. So this is a really hard thing before, you know, because I don't get in Boston Harbor, I didn't have as much in Connecticut. When people say bonita with an A or Bonito, however it says it, they say it very quick and a lot of people think they're the same fish, but the Bonito with an O is Atlantic Bonito. That's closer to um, a tuna. So you can eat that meat. It's like a red sushi type meat. Um, and then the false albacore is more, you know, kind of that mackerel species, not the, not the best tasting meat. So Atlantic, Atlantic Bonito, you can eat. Some people argue you can eat albies. I wouldn't suggest it. Um, but we only get those uh, in August and September and October. That's when they show up. So it's kind of a fun thing for our, you know, Northeast New England season, you get stripers, you love them, you're having a blast and you get big stripers and you're like, I want to kind of mix it up. Then you get some bluefish rolling in. Then the Bonito usually show Bonito with an O show up earlier. And then the Albies are usually end of August through mid October. Mm -hmm. And people go crazy for those Albies, right? Up oh there. yeah. They lose their shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean I'm losing my shit right now in Boston. I know they're, we're early. We're, you know, August 19th. It's usually maybe another five, 10 days when we see them and people are already catching them in Cape Cod. It's really funny because you hear about that. And, and then if you get anglers from your area that come <laughs> down and, and you take them to a shrimp boat or, or whatever, I mean, <laughs> we're trying not to catch those. Like, <laughs> and it's, it's just kind of a funny little psychology with fishermen. Like if something is. is too available, like <laughs> yeah. a Jack Crevel or, or a Bonita, like what we're calling a Bonita, um, I don't know, barracudas in some areas, then they're looked down upon like, yeah. no, no, that's not what we're after. But I mean, when you catch one of those, uh, false albacore in the keys, Bonita, 
yeah. and then you're you're trying to catch the blackfin tuna, there is a big difference between the oh, two yeah. fish. Like the blackfin pulls way harder, and you know you you can hear the difference in the reel. You don't even have to know what somebody hooked up. You can just hear the difference in the reel, that's cool. and yeah. and you can know. Oh, that's the one. That's what we're after yeah. right there. But I don't know. It's kind of funny because both of them are awesome. They fight like yeah. crazy and, and yeah. they, then people go crazy for them in one area and they look down upon them in another. It's just, it's just kind of funny. So the fun thing for, you know, us and again, it's like, it's a change up, right? It is hard to attain. And it's a f- interesting. It's again, another species that wants to be the first of the year to catch it or first in the fly or most you can get. And the cool thing about it is you can get Albies from shore on the fly rod. Like oh, yeah. that's the ultimate new England thing you can do. You can get them in jetties down the Cape You can get them off Rhode Island, but to catch your first from shore, I've got them from shore before, but not from the beach. Like that's next up. I've got them on a dock, you know, a little bit of cheating, but it's just so cool. when you're just, you know, you cast the fly out, you're double hand stripping as fast as you can. The Albies come out of nowhere and just peel line off. It's just the so best. Like, like how deep would the water be where you're catching them from shore? Uh, it's like super skinny, like sometimes two, three feet of water. Sometimes you're hitting a drop off of 10 to 20 feet, depending on where you're where, at. Where would they get to any co- sort of deep water? Would it be a long way away? No, like, so there's a lot of places where the they'll hit a deep water really close to shallow. Similar but like, like lots what are you saying? Fish. Like, what are you saying is deep water? Like, like 10, 100? 20 feet. Okay. But when would oh, it get so the to Albies a are always, hundred feet? Yes. Yeah. Most of the Albies we're in are probably trying to think of all the areas they're in when they come in and biting they're coming in offshore but they're really biting for us inshore wise uh, probably 50 60 feet of water at most see i mean that's a that's a big difference that makes a little more sense to me that like where we're catching these bonita there it's the same fish but they're in a much different situation you're in 50 to 100 feet of water they go straight down right so your fish are going out which is which is very similar uh to like uh, why flats fishermen really like the barracuda and offshore fishermen don't like the barracuda, right? Like you, you create this amazing kite rig with all these baits and these beautiful (laughs) baits that you just spent all this money on and a barracuda comes and snips them all off. And then the sailfish shows up and you don't have any baits and you don't even have a hook. So they hate the barracuda. And I can understand that. I really can't understand that. Or you're going out and you catch a barracuda on this giant tackle that you were meant to catch, you know, a marlin or, or, you know, a, a big fish on this giant rod and you can barely feel it fighting or anything. And it messes up your rig and, you know, they don't like them. I get it. But flats <laughs> fishermen, you know, fishing with like a little 10 pound little spinning rod or a fly yeah. rod or something. First of all, the barracuda has no place to go, but straight out. Yeah. So it's a, it's a much different fight and it's, it's a wonderful game fish, but you know, seven miles away, they despise them. And then yeah. inside they, you know, we love them. They're great, but it is a, a function of the water depth as much as anything, because yeah, for sure. with, when you, when you're catching a false albacore in really shallow water, it only has one place to go. And that's away from you to wherever the water is deeper. So that's a much different fight. And that would be, you know, much more interesting on a fly rod than, you know, straight down. And plus For now, sure. now, as soon as you hook that one, here come all the black fins that you were really, <laughs> that you were really <laughs> after, you know, now you're hooked to this thing and it's like, uh. yeah, it's too funny. Well, and that's, I mean, it's so similar because we do get Albies that like the bigger ones, the big false albacore that come in offshore as well. And, you know, you're trolling with huge 50 wides or, huge setups and really knows and it's like dead weight right because mm-hmm. it's a 10 pound fish on huge gear so the offshore fishermen don't like albies either it's like oh we got a tuna and it's like and that'll be great 
I could cut this in short fall. Like I'm good. <laughs> right. It's just a matter of matching the tackle to the, to the fish. You know, if you, For sure. if you catch a, a, a 10 pound fish on, on tackle, I mean, that, that could be a real challenge to catch on, you know, a little five weight outfit or something like that. That's going to be really, really tough and, and something you're not going to forget, but you know, you do it on a 50 wide. It's, it's not that much fun really. So, yeah. So talk, you know, you mentioned offshore and I'll get that, but just to wrap up the inshore stuff, I mean, it's, it's catching a striped bass is really cool. It's fun to come up in New England. It's a different type of fishery. Would highly suggest it, you know, like tackle fly is obviously what I'm leaning toward. I um, encourage anyone to come, but this year, you know, as the first year I got to get a taste of the offshore canyon fishery that we have in the Northeast. And it's been an absolute treat. I've had an opportunity to get out with my buddy, Nick and uh, my buddy, Captain Miles and Manny on their boats. And it's just, it's such a cool fishery to be a part of. Have you ever fished like canyons fishing down well, south? Um, maybe. I don't know if okay. it's exactly <laughs> the same thing that we're talking about, but we fished, we, we filmed a bunch of Into the Blue shows out of Maryland. And that okay. would be the, yes, that would be that, the closest the thing that I have to, to, uh, to compare it to. And yeah. we did go out to canyons and I don't know yeah. if it's exactly kind of what you're talking about, but that's where the big eye tuna was. That's where the white Marlin yes. was. That's where yeah. all that stuff was. It's a hundred, it's a long, I don't know how long it's a long run out yeah. there. And we are fishing the smallest boat in the fleet with a, a 42 <laughs> yellowfin, And yeah. you know, that's the smallest boat in the fleet. And I found out why, I mean, when we first got there, I'm like, this 42 yellowfin is like the biggest boat I've ever been in in my life. This is an amazing boat. And we yeah. get out there. It's like, this is a really small boat, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but they have, they have uh serious boats up there. And uh, oh, are you going, insane. are you going way out? Like what's, when you're going to those canyons, like what kind of run are you talking about? Yeah. Super long. I mean, it's the same canyons. Yeah. If you look at the map, that continental shelf, it goes by Maryland, Virginia, all the way up New York, New Jersey off of, Block Island and off Massachusetts. So I've been running from the Cape. So mostly Hyannis and Nantucket. And we've run, you know, anywhere to 100, 150 miles out. The worst thing about the center console, which you might experience too, is that at night it rains and you're, you know, caught out shore. So I was sleeping in a hammock the last trip and it rained for three hours straight. <laughs> <laughs> but it was all worth it for the fish. It was all worth it for the fish we got. And so are you getting some experience with the big eye tuna? Yeah. So, I mean, when you, what I'm learning and heard and everyone talk about, you know, yellowfin are usually what you always get. There's an albacore tuna, which longfin tuna, as people call them, that people, it's kind of like the canned tuna. Some people love it. Some people don't like it. And then everyone always wants to catch big eye or swordfish or, you know, billfish, marlin, and then, you know, mahi, even though I haven't caught a mahi yet, that's like one of the, I haven't caught a wahi, sorry, mahi, wahoo, or blue marlin. Those are still on the list. But uh, big eye tuna, are the coolest fighting fish in the ocean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They are bad. Those things are tough. Fish. Yeah. They're badass. Yeah. We got into, um, we got into some of those. And what I liked about that was the, uh, or the whales, there were all these whales yeah. out there and, uh, it was, it was remarkable. I mean, it was, we got, it was seemed to be rough. Like it was a pretty rough ride out there. And then we got out there and it kind of flattened out a little bit. And then, then we were surrounded by these whales. I'll never forget it. It was one of the coolest <laughs> things ever. And we hooked a big eye, um, Marlin, we got Mar Marlin on there. I don't know. Made for some good shows. Uh, Scott yeah. Walker, he's all about that area, that Maryland yeah. area, and fishes the the White Marlin Open and all those big tournaments yeah. up there. But man, that's a cool area. I mean, it really is because you got you got that big game fishing, but then you've also got like good hunting on the on the inshore side. Like there's good deer yeah. hunting and turkey hunting and and uh, all kinds of stuff up there. I mean, it's a it's a sportsman's place. And you, sometimes you think about the 
the Northeast and you think uh, New York or whatever, and you know, you don't really start thinking about hunting, but man, I'm telling you, there's some good hunting up there. And, and some of those guys, and they know they live right, man. They got good hunting land. They got big yeah. boats. They go out and they, they do the fishing and it's, it's, it's good, man. I saw it. I'm I not, saw it. Life, I've, life can be good up there. It can. I've not gotten in the hunting game. I can uh, barely afford the time or money in the fishing game. If I told my wife I was taking out hunting, I probably wouldn't have a wife anymore. <laughs> so well, I'll wait to go. I'll wait to go as a guest with somebody. Yeah, you just need a good friend, like like the one that has the boat. I'm sure he's got some good hunting land, and you need to go yeah, to his exactly. hunting land and and uh, let him show you what it's all about. But you know, I just got to trick my son or daughter to like that, and then I'll be able to go do it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure you will. Well, you got a lot of cool stuff going on, man. And I really, I really appreciate. Uh, kind of, I, I learned a lot about the striped bass and, and kind yeah, of the culture that. of striped yeah. bass and the, and the, the, the conservation and some of the challenges and stuff like that. And that's, it's always interesting to me, um, to, to learn about different areas and different, different places. And, and, you know, as much as there are differences, there's so much of the same, like, you know, with so many of the conservation issues, you know, it's kind of the same story, different fish, you know, yeah, that, for sure. and, and so much of the culture is, is, similar, but, uh, quite a bit different, but one of these days I'll get up there. I'll check it out, man. Let's go get up here. Come on. Let's put you on some fish. All right. Well, um, if people wanted to, uh, if people wanted to follow you, check out what you're doing, why not all that stuff. How do they do it? Where do they see you? Uh, best place on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, just Joe Gugino, first name, last name. Super easy. Okay. I'd love to connect or talk striper fishing or fishing in general with anyone. All right. All right. Well, I'm sure you'll have some people hooking you up. Or, or calling you up, you can hook them up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Joe, Joe, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate the conversation. And uh, thank you, sir. We will uh, we'll stay in touch. This will be out in a couple of weeks. You got it. Tight lines. Talk soon. All right. Okay. See you. Yeah. Bye bye.